0: was back in 2015 in a Time Magazine article. Uh, they asked the question, is monogamy over? And they deliberately looked for answers to that question from a v- wide cross-section of people. Uh, they had uh, responses from a pastor. They had responses from a porn star and everything in between. And really what their, their goal was to try to check in with with culture, check-in, with uh, the understanding of where the times are. And people responded with things like this. They said, the beauty of sexuality is that it's open-ended. Someone said, there's no right, there's no wrong, it's based on the individual. Uh, Someone said, the interest of the youth doesn't seem to be consistent with the old format of relationships. One woman wrote, Monogamy is not the solution, but it is a problem. And then she went on to describe why, why it was a problem and, and, uh, and why it should be abandoned as, as a concept or an idea. In one sense, the article wasn't showing us or telling us anything new, but the, I, what I think was trying, what they were trying to do was to check in with culture and say, this sexual revolution that began in the 60s has it reached its conclusion? Is it, is it done now in completely uh, abandoning uh, one definition of, uh, of, of marriage and transforming it into uh, something that, that really jettisons um, what people had believed for so long? Ironic- ironically, it was just three years after that ar- article that the Harvey Weinstein uh, scandal broke and the Me Too movement was born. And at that point, after the Me Too movement started, you heard less people saying the beauty of sexuality is that it's open-ended. There is no right. There is no wrong. It's based on the individual. You heard fewer people saying that because when you are faced with the ugliness of the human heart, you recognize there are consequences. When... Free expression of love becomes selfish expression of love. There is great pain and there are casualties. As we come to uh, today's passage, it's with a recognition. Uh, people have said that, that both cultures and religions do typically one of two things when it comes to love. Either, either sex is deified or it is demonized. Either it becomes a god or a taboo. And the Bible does neither of those things in this area. It it does something far more radical than that. It it completely reshapes our understanding uh, of of love and places it within the framework of the sacrificial love of God himself. Uh, We're in a series this summer where we're just walking passage by passage through the letter of 1 Thessalonians. And uh, we are in a series called Living Life in Light of the End, We're trying to say, how do I live today in light of what the Bible says is coming? How how the Bible says this world will end? How do we we see ourselves? How do we see the decisions that are before us? How do we live the lives that God has given us? In today's passage, it helps us to see what happens when we see love as God designed it. When we see not only uh, some some rough definitions of what you're supposed to do and not do, but more radically, what happens when God takes center stage in all of our relationships? Because if there's anything that Time Magazine article, the Me Too movement tells us, it tells us that we not only need God's wisdom, and we do, but we need God's help. We need God's strength and his power to get there. And so a list of rules is not going to be enough. We need, we need a person. We need a Savior who will walk us, uh, walk us in the direction that He leads. And that's what that's what God gives us in today's passage and in a relationship with Him. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn with me to First Thessalonians chapter four. Uh, I want to encourage you to just leave your Bibles open in front of you. I'm going to, I'll, first of all, read from verses 1 to 12, and then we'll walk through it together. Uh, if you want to use your pew Bible and the rack in front of you, it's on uh, page 928. And uh, I, I'm going to just keep referring us back to this passage all through the message so that you know that what we're looking at is God's word. We're not looking at Paul's word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. This is the word of God. Now, before we get into what this passage teaches, we need to step back and see what this passage says about just how important this is. There are clues in the text that would have us circle this and write exclamation marks in the margins of our of our Bibles. And I want you to see just what what uh, uh, what's going on in the text to help us to to, to do that. In verse 1, Paul says, we ask and urge you. And we're probably not surprised to hear Paul's asking, asking things in his letter, urging things. But here, he, he usually will do that, he'll make commands. He'll, he'll do them uh, as commands personally coming from him. Here, though, he says it is we that is asking. He, he draws in the authority of Timothy, who has just returned from them, and Sylvanus. It's, it's as if he's saying, it's not just me that's writing you this letter. When it comes to this particular area, we're all deeply concerned about this. But he doesn't just leave it there. He goes and, and continues uh, and, in urging you in the Lord Jesus. He moves from his own authority to the authority of uh, Timothy and Silvan- Silvanus along, alongside him to saying, this is com- coming to you. In the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and again in verse 2, he says the instructions were given through the Lord Jesus. This is something that God is deeply concerned about. And when I speak to you on this, I'm not, I'm not doing so flippantly. I'm bringing you the command of the Lord. And you need to recognize how important this, the teaching in this particular area is. He says that to the Thessalonians because Timothy has brought a report that... There were some problems there in this regard. And we're 2019 in Canada, and life has not changed all that very much. And so as we get into the text, as we hear what God says in this area, we recognize these instructions are, are underlined in red. They're, they, they come with exclamation marks. They come with the Lord's authority in our lives. So let's get into... Uh, uh, our understanding of, of what, what it is that God is saying to us here, and we do so with a recognition, stakes are high, and God is seeking to speak to each one of us. He starts with the boundaries. Uh, true love doesn't hop the fence. God has designed boundaries within which our understanding and experience of love is intended to be uh, enjoyed to its fullest. And because of that, true love, nonselfish love, The the love that God has designed doesn't cross those borders. It doesn't hop the fence. Verse 3 kicks us off in saying that this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Uh, Many of you have come to points in your lives where you have felt, I want to know what God's will is. And usually when you say that in your mind, usually you're talking about, I want to know, should I choose this job or that job? Or should I go to this school or that school? Um, Shall I I do this or that in a particular decision that you're faced with? And sometimes it's, it's good to ask those questions. This verse reminds us that more importantly than any of those little decisions that we make, that the will of God for us is our sanctification, that we be made holy that we be conformed to Christ's likeness, and particularly so in this area of sexuality. The command that follows it to abstain from sexual immorality is a call to, uh, that prohibits any sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. If you feel like this is a challenge in 2019 in Canada, unbelievably, it was even more so in Thessalonica in the first century. There, sexual freedom was not only permitted, it was encouraged and embraced. It was entrenched in their culture. And so, for instance, uh, it was expected that in addition to a man having a wife, he would, uh, of, uh, of just as a matter of course, he would have mistresses and concubines. And, and that, was, that was expected behavior, it was accepted behavior. They did draw one line in this area, when it w- and it came to adultery. Uh, generally, it was frowned upon to, uh, to have another man's wife. But the solution to it was not, not purity, was not monogamy. The solution was prostitution. And, and so that was embraced and seen as respectable, seen as a good solution to an otherwise bad problem. And so what happened as Paul moved into Thessalonica, he had, as we've seen in the series, just those several weeks with them, a very short period of time where he proclaims the gospel. He begins to disciple and and lay a foundation for their understanding of the Christian life. That as he does that after that very short time, people stir up uh, opposition from the authorities. There's a riot. Paul is run out of town. Because of that, there were some people in the church who heard the message and they found great hope in Jesus Christ. They found great hope in the gospel, and they wanted to put their trust in in Jesus, and they did. But there were some who, in finding great hope in Jesus Christ, rejected the message that Paul gave with regard to sexuality. The bar just seemed too high. It seemed to be too, too high of a standard, too much to ask. It seemed to go so far against everything that they had known and everything that they understood culturally. In verse 4, we're called, for instance, to control our bodies in holiness and honor. The two words that are used there are important. Important to to kind of slow down and reflect on them. To, To control your body in holiness, the idea of holiness is fundamentally to be set apart. Here, we are being set apart to honor God. Set apart for him. Set apart for his purposes. He's called us aside as his own. And and sometimes we can see the word holiness and just see the the moral and ethical side of that without seeing the person, without seeing the great privilege that it is to be set apart for God and his good pleasure and his glory in this world. In Deuteronomy, Moses described this great privilege. Chapter 7, verse 6, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, know from the authority of Scripture you have this great privilege. This great privilege of having been set apart as God's treasured possession, as one who is valuable in his sight, one who is his great importance, that that he can... See us and say, "I treasure you. I value you. You you have worth and significance in my sight." And, and it is so important to stop as we look at these at, at some of the moral commands in Scripture to remember that the God who is behind them loves us with a depth of love that often we we feel a, a sense of longing for. It's important to 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 camp here for a moment because often what it is that makes us cross those moral lines and and hop those moral fences is a seeking after someone who will value us, someone who loves us, someone who cares for us. And the message of Scripture is that there is someone who values you and cares for you, one who finds significance in, in you, who treasures you, and he calls you to his own. He calls you to be separate. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Again, combining some of the moral commands, some of those boundaries with regard to love, and saying, remember who this God is who has called you. He bought you. He purchased you out of slavery. He set his love upon us that we might be free. And he doesn't want us to be back in bondage again. And it's also a reminder that having been bought with a price, we're not our own. Our bodies aren't our our own. We have been set apart for another. God himself purchased us. And this God who also purchased us dwells within us. And reminds us, this God who dwells within us is holy. He is pure. And because he is pure, he doesn't like to dwell in a place where there is sexual sin, where there is impurity, pornography, immorality. We've been called to be separate. And God lives in us by his spirit, and the God who lives within us is a holy God. Now, the call to purity is further defined by the phrase in verse 5, and again, it's an important phrase. It says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. He's saying people who don't know God can be controlled by these desires. I understand that that happens, he says. But you're different. You have have received a different calling. You've received different power. You've been redeemed by a different saviour. Here, lust is defined by John Piper as sexual desire minus a commitment to honor the other person. He says to say to another person, I want you to satisfy my sexual desire, but I don't want you as a covenant partner in marriage basically means I want to use your body for my pleasure, but as a whole person, I don't want you. Again, the call of scripture is, People who don't know God may do that. People who don't know what to do with these desires that they have, desires for for longing, for significance, for worth, maybe, maybe they've got to try and hop over fences to try and meet them, thinking that that's where they'll find their hope. But he says, you're different. You know where to find fullness of satisfaction. We know the one who is the spring of living water. Jesus is the one who quenches our thirst. We know him as the bread of life, the one who satisfies us, the one who feeds us. And so we are not the ones who need to jump over those fences in order to seek the satisfaction that he alone can provide. So true love doesn't hop the fence. But true love gives instead of taking as well. Here we're moving from the negative to the positive because our our understanding of morality and ethics in Scripture is never a list of things that we just don't do. It is far more positive than that. It, it, It points us to a person, but it also points and paints a picture of the beauty of God's design. And so here we move from boundaries to generosity. True love gives instead of just taking. Verse 9 says, Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Now, I've taught some things to you about God's standard for purity. I, I have, have communicated some of those things, and I'll continue to, to, uh, c- to communicate some of those things until uh, my time runs out. But in one sense, I don't need to. Because if you are a believer in Jesus Christ... His Holy Spirit testifies to your spirit when you are about to hop over one of those fences. He has already made it clear to you. And so we feel that in our spirit. We feel the sense that he is grieved when we are crossing one of those lines. But he's taught us these things in a different way as well. He's taught us these things in in that he has shown us what love is like in his sacrifice of himself he presents to us a picture of what true love is Jesus Christ died for our sins that in him we might be forgiven and made whole and in his love we see a picture of what true love is we see in his forgiveness in his patience in his faithfulness in his forgiveness, we see what love was intended to be. There, many, there were many in the church in Thessalonica who would learned from this. They had, they had understood, though they, though they knew very little about uh, the Christian faith yet, they knew in its very basic sense, Jesus gave everything for, that I might have what I couldn't otherwise get. And so, as they came to faith, they began to do likewise. They sacrificed for, for others. In, in verse 10, Paul says, That indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. They were showing that kind of sacrificial love. In and in being in the, the capital of that province, they saw these smaller churches uh, being, being established, and they saw... The persecution and the opposition they had experienced it themselves, and so out of what God had provided for them, they shared with others. They lifted up these others that were struggling financially throughout the province, and God and 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 God affirms that, and Paul responds to that and says, "This thing that you're doing, that's that's exactly what we're talking about in that in that giving love and that sacrificial love." But he says in verse 10, do this more and more. You've made a really good start, but this is exactly what a Christian is called to. He also calls them to break their dependency. In verse 11, he says, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. In verse 12, he adds, and be dependent on no one. What had happened here was that the love of God had inspired many of the Thessalonians to generosity they began to give freely to people that were in need. Unfortunately, however, some of the people began to take advantage of that generosity. As they faced persecution, as they faced opposition, their, some of their business suffered, frankly. And some of them lost, lost jobs. And as some in the congregation had been very generous to them, they thought, we don't need to work we, we could just sit and, and and read the Bible and pray and talk to each other and have fellowship and this is great and, and, and his message to them is essentially that love is about giving, not just taking. Get a job it's, It was a call uh, to uh, to provide for themselves. He tells them, work with your hands because not as if um, working with your hands or manual labor is somehow elevated in the scripture as particularly holy or, uh, or, or worthy in some way. It does dignify working with your hands, but here the idea was in Greek culture in, in, at, at this time, manual labor was looked down upon. It was seen as something that people who had arrived and made it didn't need to do, didn't, shouldn't, shouldn't be expected to do. And so as people's businesses suffered or some lost jobs, people were saying, well, there's, there's nothing I can do. And, and Paul's response is, you need to swallow your pride and take whatever job you can get. You need to be prepared to provide for yourself. Be dependent on no one. And, and, and it's all in this context of love, flowing from this idea that love is about giving, not just taking. It's about the sacrifice that we have been called to in Christ. So, so far we've seen the Bible's message started with those boundaries. It starts by saying no to selfish love. But it never just stops there. It moves in this positive direction in saying yes to sacrificial love. Yes to generous love. And some of you are hearing this and you're saying, it feels so hard and I, and 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 maybe you're clear about what the Bible teaches you 're just not clear about whether it's good. Maybe some of you are feeling I, I wish i'd kind of put off becoming a Christian because i I think if I could just be free and and live like the world, then maybe my life would be easier and more full and more satisfying and I think it's important to 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 when we feel like that, to step back, to look at the scriptures, remind yourself of our God, and remind yourself that what God has proclaimed for us is not only true, but it's also good. It's not only good for the people in this room, it is good, however unpopular it might be, it is good for our world. Let me explain why I feel that way. In two thousand and twelve, a Canadian study found this that seventy eight percent of women and seventy two percent of women of men sorry who had had what they refer to as uncommitted sex reported a history of feeling regret after the encounter seventy eight percent of women seventy two percent of men regret after the after the encounter and you 're thinking but Everything we're told in the media is like, this is great. The more free you are and the, the more you just ignore all of those boundaries. And that, that's, that's really living. And yet, more than three quarters of them report feeling regret. Why is that? The regret comes because when you face the reality of the selfishness of the human heart, when the boundaries are taken away, we hurt one another. They're casualties. In, in fact, the American Psychological Association drilled down deeper into the feelings. They, they weren't content to just say, oh, these uh, seems like people feel regret about this. They drilled down deeper into the feelings, and what they, what they concluded in, in speaking with over a 1,000 people was that the men felt sorry for having used the other person, and the women felt regret for having been used. Both of them felt regret. The men felt sorry. The women felt regret. Either they were using another or they were being used by another. And there are some in our culture today who would hear those statistics and say, the answer is, we need to turn the tables. Let's, let's use them. As if that is a solution. Because both sides are feeling the regret. Both, both sides feel the pain of this. When the selfishness of the human heart is unleashed, there are consequences. And there is pain. And whether you are inflicting that pain or you are on the receiving end of it, there's regret on both sides. God's love is the hope that our culture needs. God's design for love it is, not, is not what's popular, but it is what is most satisfying. It is what we deeply need at the heart of uh, what we are seeking. So, so far we started with the boundaries and we said that true love doesn't hop the fence. Then we moved from boundaries to gener- generosity and said that true love is about giving, giving, instead of taking. But as we near the finish line, as we, as we conclude, we need to figure out where do you put this message? Where does this teaching fit with everything you may or may not have heard about the Christian faith up until this point? Because people will tend to do one of two things with this teaching that I've shared with you so far. Some of you will say, that's very interesting, and, 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 and I find it quite compelling. But it kind of feels like, maybe like in the same way that you say, someday I'm, I'm hoping to grow in prayer. Maybe you're thinking, someday I'm hoping to, to, to adopt this whole thing about God's design for love. Someday maybe I'll I'll get around to that. It feels a little bit extracurricular maybe to some of you. This is maybe kind of some optional teaching, something you could work on at some point. Other people are kind of at the other end of that extreme. Other people would say, I I understand everything you're saying about this boundaries and and God's rules about, about love and sexuality. And in fact, I believe it so much, I see this as the basis for my acceptance with God. I see this as uh, uh, my means of earning my way into heaven someday. I see my diligence in trying to keep all the rules as the means by which God would accept me. And the Bible says neither of those extremes are biblical options. That's just not how this teaching fits in with the Christian message. And so the final thing I want to look with you is to see that true love demonstrates true faith. That true love won't earn someone's way into heaven. You can't get there by just working at being really, 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 really loving. It doesn't work that way. But a lack of it, a lack of true love may disqualify you from heaven. And that's because true love demonstrates true faith. And it's here in the passage. Do you remember when we looked at verses 3 to 5 and we talked about Jesus as Lord of your body? When we talked about not living like those who don't know God, not being a sexual atheist? Well, look at how the second half of verse 6 ends that section. It says, The Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand. And solemnly warned you. Now we need to pause for a moment and say, Avenger has got to be one of the coolest titles for God ever, right? Like that, it just is. It's a cool, God is an Avenger. But anyone know what the name means? What that title means? Here, the, the Greek word literally means punisher. It's someone who meets out the wrath of God. It is someone who brings about justice. And you're thinking, well, God isn't, av- Paul sent this letter to a church, a group of believers, and he's talking to them about, about love, and I kind of thought this was just some extracurricular detour, and, but he's saying that God's going to go Avenger on them? Like, what does that even mean? What is, what is he talking about? It's a warning that God will judge sexual sin. And that a refusal to deal with this area of sexual purity is an indication about our heart condition and the reality of our faith or lack of it. John Piper puts it like this, either God is a God of the bedroom or he is no God at all. If you feel that you have embraced Christ, but you are not willing to deal with this area of your sexuality, and you're saying, God, I want heaven, but hands off, back away in this area of my life. The Bible's saying that's that's not an option that's open to you. You get all of God or you get nothing. Jesus said something similar in Matthew 5, 29. Watch what he says. He says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members and your whole body be thrown into hell. The point is, we should take drastic measures to deal with sin and particularly this whole area of sexual sin because the call to faith is a call to holiness. It's not as if we are called to faith Get heaven, and if you want holiness, then that might be something you want to do as as one of your electives. No, the call to faith is a call to holiness. That's why Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. God doesn't save people so they can enjoy sin. That's not the invitation. He saves people to transform them, to purify them. To set them apart to himself, to to set them apart as holy. Is it difficult? Yes. Does it happen overnight? No. Is there a process? Is there a battle? Yes, yes. But if you are saying, back off, Lord, I don't want you in this area of my life. And you are still expecting to see the Lord? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We will see him, but we will not see him as we expect to see him, is the message. We will see him as an avenger. We will see him as one carrying out and coming with wrath. David Haig puts it like this, The only way to overcome a passion for sin is with an overwhelming passion for righteousness. This overwhelming passion for righteousness is actually a mindset that the Bible calls faith. He's saying that's, that's what faith is. It's not like we're adding something, something to faith. He says, faith is a life-dominating conviction that all God has for me through obedience is better by far than anything Satan can offer me through selfishness and sin. Is that your faith? When you say, I believe in Jesus, is this what you're talking about? That I believe everything God has for me through obedience is better by far. Not just, I'm kind of, I'm reluctantly, drudgingly, I'll do kind of the bare minimum. No, this is better by far than anything that Satan could offer me. Is that your faith? If so, you invite him into every area of your life. And if so, whether you would say, Paul, I'm in the battle right now and it's hard. Or if you'd say, Paul, you know what? I think I just had that, that faith that some of the Thessalonians did where they, were just, they just wanted heaven and a little bit of Jesus but kind of hands off to the rest of my life. Maybe That's where I was, but that's not where I want to be. I, I want to I I get in the battle. I want to deal with this thing called holiness I want to deal with the impurity in my life but it's difficult and if that's where you are I, I want to I want to tell you that there is hope in Jesus Christ that he is the one that puts together the pieces he is the one that lifts us up he is rightly called our savior and so let me just in closing share a few things I would encourage you to start by going to him. To going to him in prayer and agreeing with him about the things that he says in his word about your life. Agree with him. You confess your sins as sin. In confessing, it is also with a recognition to say, God, this is where I am and I'm sick of it. I want to turn. I want to turn and go in your direction. I want to embrace this thing you call true love. Tell him that you want holiness as much as he he does. And by faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, receive his forgiveness, his acceptance, and his love. Receive also the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within you and empowers you to live a life you couldn't live on your own. Some of you will say, Paul, I've tried that. And if that's where you are, I want to say to you what we have been saying for several weeks in this message already, which is, don't do it alone. The Christian life was never intended to be lived, in, lived alone. Get in community. The, the, the biblical answer for dealing with sin in our life that is too big for one person to handle is to confess it to another. Someone who will pray for you, someone who you respect in the Lord to to lift you up when you feel like you've got nothing left. Get in community with other believers so that you have a team around you that can hold you up when you can't go on. I'd also encourage you to get a plan. If sin has taken a deep hold in a particular area of your life, it's not just going to snap, go away. You need a plan. And the plan has to be more specific than just... I'm going to stop sinning. You need more of a plan than that. And, and, And maybe as you share with someone that you respect in the Lord, they can help you with the plan. But you need to get a plan. And you need the patience to work the plan because there will be setbacks, there will be stumbling, but ultimately God will walk you through that. But as you get your plan... As you get with God, as you seek his face, as you get into the battle, I want to encourage you to rest in Christ. To rest in the promises that we've seen in the scriptures, even as we've considered them this morning. Revel in the fact that the Lord has chosen you as his treasured possession. So you don't have to go searching for some more, something somewhere else. Own your identity as a person who is set apart for a holy God. Precious to him. His treasured possession. Infinite in value to the the Lord who matters. Marvel at the fact that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives within you. Remember Jesus bought you out of slavery at the cost of his own life. And as you do, remember that there will come a day when the battle is all done. When all of this struggling with sin, all of this striving for holiness will be behind us. And there'll be no more struggle. There'll just be rest. And we will see our Savior face to face. And nobody will say at that, point, at that time, I wished I had sinned more. I wished I'd hopped over more moral fences. Nobody will say, I, I wish that I had, I had used more people. I wished I'd let my body be more used. Nobody will say that. On that day when we see our Savior face to face, there will be a sense of relief, of joy, of acceptance, and we'll say that the battle was worth it. That that striving for holiness will find its culmination as we see the one who is holy and we experience his acceptance and love. Let's look to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, would you heal our brokenness? Would you meet us in whatever condition that we might be this morning? And would you take us by the hand and lead us to the place that we need to go? We live in an age that is love so messed up that it's easy for us to get lost. It's easy for us to stumble. But we believe that you're the one who saves. So lead us to that place of repentance. And as we do, as we get in the battle as we turn our backs on the sin and the selfishness of our own hearts. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. Help us to draw alongside to others who will encourage us to, to get alongside brothers and sisters in Christ who lift us up. And as we do, Father, Father, Help us to lay hold of, by faith, your precious promises. To feel the depth of your great love for us. And glory in the great plan that you have for those who are called by your name. We praise you in Jesus' name.